We'll do it live. This is this is <laughs> one card. Holy sh! <laughs> all right. Um, we'll so, see if we can get through all this. We'll see how it goes. Maybe it becomes three parts. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's fine. <laughs> really? Dan, you say thumbs up. Okay. Your skin prickles, and the hairs on the back of your neck stand on end. There's something here, hidden from cursory sight. Your eyes scan the ceilings, walls, floor. There, just a few feet in front of you, a single flagstone is slightly raised, barely perceptible, and a cleverly hidden hinge beneath the stone's lip sits ready to swing open. But this could have gone differently. A strange knocking sound emanates from the floor beneath you, and you are suddenly disoriented by a drop into darkness. Light filters through the trap door to reveal a gleam beneath you, something wickedly sharp lining the bottom of the pit. You reach out, desperate for a handhold, but find only smooth, slick stone. This scene from Describe, Spiked Pit Trap. Describe, describe your world. Go to Describe.com slash RPGBot and use code RPGBot5 at checkout to get $5 off your first subscription payment. I really like how they do these because most of the traps on Describe, they give you a perceived if the group detects it and a triggered if the group doesn't detect it and said trigger it. Um, yeah, I think that's really cool. I think it's cool too, Randall. <laughs> I think it's cool too, Randall. Thanks, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> he, he just left it out there for us and we just stared <laughs> blankly at him. Yep. Yep. The best Just podcast like, co-host. Yep. You're not yes and yes and. <laughs> Welcome to the RPG Bot Podcast. I'm Randall James, and with me is Tyler Campstra. Hi, everybody. And Ash Eli. Enter if you dare. <laughs> no, I don't wanna. <laughs> uh, all right, Tyler, what is happening? All right. So I'm going to ask you guys a question first. So uh, do either of you have your Dungeon Master's Guide handy? I, I'm nope. just going to imagine no. And uh, I mean, people on the pod will just pretend. So uh, picture in your mind the cover of the fifth edition Dungeon Master's Guide. On the cover, there's a lich wearing a crown, holding a staff, like casting a spell and raising an army of the dead. We're going to talk about that guy. Uh, a Sararak, so right? A Sararak, that's right. Uh, one of the oldest villains in D&D history. Specifically, we're going to talk about where he was buried. The Tomb of Horrors. So, I talk about the Tomb of Horrors a lot. Uh, like, it comes up on a lot of our episodes. I mention it for reference. And for good reason, Tomb of Horrors is one of the most iconic adventures in D&D history. In fact, it was the first published adventure for advanced Dungeons and Dragons. Literally, this goes back almost as far as D&D itself does. We're going to look at Tomb of Horrors. We're going to look at how it has evolved over editions because it has been printed in every edition. So we're going to look at how it has changed. And we're going to use that as kind of a frame of reference to watch how the game D&D itself has evolved 
since the early 70s. Okay, and then I think it's probably worth saying now, we just talked about a lot of content that we want to get through. This is actually going to be a two-part episode. Uh, So this will be here. And yeah, next week, you get to hear a little bit more. So as we go through this, uh, there there are going to be spoilers. There are going to be a lot of spoilers. So if you have any intent of being a player in Tomb of Horrors, first, I'm sorry. Second, uh, maybe come back to this after you've died several times. Yeah. We're also going to have kind of a a game show thing. This is going to be fun. I'm going to put ash and randall through portions of the tomb of horrors and we're gonna just kind of run this fast and loose just like loosely interpret the rules make some vague assumptions that they've got an infinitely deep party roster of whatever characters they need just kind of show like here's how players fall into these things and repeatedly die okay so this is going to be a little bit like squid games but with tomb of horrors yeah that feels like a good comparison yeah but on the line is our soul, and the reward you get for it is the friends you made along the way, I guess? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. The, the loot here is pretty good. That's true. Some That's of true. it is cursed. So it is like Squid Games. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I'm, I mentioned earlier, uh, Tomb of Horrors was the first printed adventure for Advanced Dungeons & Dragons, and it has been printed in every edition of the game in some fashion. Um, so there's a few things I specifically want to call out as we go through. So I want to talk about traps. So uh, Randall, your spiked pit trap read, perfect. Uh, we're going to talk a bit about the monsters. We're going to talk a little bit about like the philosophy of how these adventures are written, published, and how they talk to the dungeon master, things like that. And we're going to look at some other mechanics along the way. And comparing how those mechanics have changed over time is really, really interesting from a design perspective, from a hobby perspective. And just see like, wow, I can't believe they used to do it this way. Weird. And we'll hit on a Sarah a few times as we go through because... Uh, uh, He's an interesting character, kind of, and his backstory kind of evolves over the additions as the adventure itself has been updated. So let's go ahead and jump into uh, the first round of our game. Uh, So I'm going to pull up the uh, I'm going to pull up Tales from the Yawning Portal and I'm going to open up the Tomb of Horrors adventure all the way at the back of the book. And I'm going to read you guys area two. So you've reached the Tomb of Horrors, which is a hill Um, on top of the hill. If you look down at it from high enough, there's stones laid out in the shape of a skull face. So it's like, ah, yeah, okay. there's some tongue in cheek here. Um, And you've noticed there's like a weird area on the north side of the hill. And after some digging around through some fallen sand and gravel, you've found an entrance tunnel. The corridor before you is made of plain stone, roughly worked and mortared with a 10 foot high ceiling. Uh, So there's enough daylight here that you can see in Uh, the paving stones on the floor. uh, All right. So so the stones go into the tunnel about 50 feet and toward the back, you see a door. How would you like to proceed? So there's tiles on the floor and a door on the other side of the tiles. Yeah, the the walls, floor and ceiling are all mortared stone. It's all in pretty good shape, it looks like, and it just goes like roughly square tube straight back 50 feet, ending in a door. Well, as any good adventurer, I have a a small log with me that I'm going to roll across (laughs) the tiles. Perfect. 
All right. All right. Ash has learned from this podcast and he has brought the log rogue. Uh, so the your your big thick heavy log rolls happily down the smooth stone floor and about halfway through um it bounces off of something and you hear kind of a grinding sound and a huge block of stone shifts about halfway down the hallway moving across the entrance and sealing it complete so the the original trap here is uh People get far enough into the tunnel that they get close to the door and then that stone closes. And depending on which edition you're in, you have different ways to not be trapped behind it. So in the original first edition rules, it was still very close to wargaming rules. So measurement was moved in inches. So like your character's speed would be something like one inch. So your character would then like everyone would roll initiative. And you would have to move an inch at a time to try and get out before the block sealed. Uh, in other editions, it works a little differently. So in Tales from the Yawning Portal, basically it, it moves a little bit each initiative count. Um, I think at one, it completely blocks the corridor. So as long as you don't roll uh, one or below on your initiative, you're fine in yawn the Yawning Portal version. Um, in other versions, it is considerably more lethal. But uh, you also get to do fun things like casting stone to flesh on this block. That's gross. Yeah. Yeah, that is really gross. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I want to make sure that I understand this. So Log Rogue down the tunnel, we're casually sitting at the happy end of the tunnel, watching the Log Rogue roll down. Are we now sealed outside the tomb and we get to go safely home? Correct. Well, okay, that's that's something. <laughs> Yeah, okay. you're not I guess inside. our adventure <laughs> adventure's um, concluded. Okay, <laughs> I I thinking quickly run down and I pick up our log rogue and I say I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, and then I toss it in between the stone, hoping to hold it somewhat open so we can get in. Come on, buddy, we're going on an adventure. Uh, the enormous stone crushes your log to smithereens, uh, destroying it beyond repair. Bye, Randall. Uh, surprise, Pikachu face. You are now trapped in utter darkness behind the stone block. And oh, by the way, the door on the wall is a matte painting. I don't like that. OK. <laughs> yes. So this is uh, this is one of the three or sorry. This is one of the two false entrances to the Tomb of Horrors. There are, in fact, three entrances. Two of them are false. So one of them is this one. Uh, area number one is like a bunch of stones fall, fall from the ceiling and crush you. And area three is the actual entrance, which we've actually talked about previously on the podcast, I think on the traps episode. Um, and when we when we talk about that in a few minutes, it might feel familiar. So let's talk a little bit about kind of more of the history of the adventure, um, because the context around this is interesting. And a lot of the a lot of the historical information that we can find about this is actually written by Gary Gygax himself because he wrote this adventure. There's a sidebar in Tales from the Awning Portal, and I'm just I'm just going to read it aloud real quick. Uh, well, actually, OK, I'm going to stop you for a second. And um, I hate that I'm doing this, but just in case. Tell folks at home who Gary Gygax is. Oh, yeah. OK, so Gary Gygax is uh, the co-creator of Dungeons and Dragons. He was the founder of TSR Hobbies. People widely think of him as like the guy who created D&D. He did co-create it with Dave Arneson, but uh, there's much better D&D historians than us who can tell you all about that. Uh, look up the book Game Wizards if you're curious. 
But yeah, Gary Gygax, synonymous with early D&D. We'll have a link in the show notes. Yeah. Okay, and so the reason this is so exciting and interesting is because this is an adventure that he wrote, that he prepared. And, and like you said, when he was writing this, they had freshly come off creating the, they weren't calling it first edition, right? It was just Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, but they were fresh off creating that rule system. And so you can almost see manifest, like people had been wargaming. This game was created. And then we have this first adventure that's published that really demonstrates probably a lot of what Gary was thinking about in the game. Exactly. So so I'm going to read a little bit from Tales from the Yawning Portal, and then I'm going to make you guys compete and do Gary Gygax impressions. Uh, I don't know what he sounds like, I'll be honest. Even better. Uh, Tomb of Horrors was born in Gary Gygax's home campaign and introduced to the world at the first Origins game convention in 1975. Since its original publication in 1978, Tomb of Horrors has risen to legendary status among D&D players and is generally regarded as one of the greatest adventures of all time. In the words of its creator, this is a thinking person's adventure. It was designed not for player characters of a certain level, though high-level adventurers are certainly necessary, but for players who enjoy a mental challenge and DMs who want to put their own spin on this truly unique dungeon. So that's from Tales from the Awning Portal. So like, this is what three four years ago like basically fresh yeah in the scheme of history it's it's a few years into 5e but it's also uh, 40 years after tomb of horrors is published exactly all right so uh ash randall which one of you guys wants to be the first victim i see randall volunteering okay so randall you were going to read uh, notes for the dm in the first edition adventure intros like this is the original text like the first words in this adventure that that a DM would ever see. Okay, so given that uh, Gary lived in the Midwest, uh, I'm just going to assume that there was a thick Midwestern accent. We're going to go with that. You ready? Go for it. Be going to baggle. Okay, I can do it now. As clever players will gather from a reading of the legend of the tomb, this dungeon has more tricks and traps than it has monsters to fight. This is a thinking person's module, and if your group is a hack and slay gathering, they will be unhappy. In the latter case, it is better to skip the whole thing than come out and tell them that they're of you monsters. It is this writer's belief that brain work is good for all players, and they will certainly benefit from playing this module, for individual levels of skill will be improved by reasoning and experience. If you regularly pose problems to be solved by brains and not brawn, your players will find this module immediately to their liking. And... That specific block of text has been copy-pasted in almost every update of the adventure. Gary Gygax, in his own words, like, what does he think about this adventure? And yeah, no one has felt the need to change that. Um, Like, bits of that are quoted in Tales from the Yawning Portal. All right, so next we're going to jump to second edition. This is the Return to the Tomb of Horrors. So this was, we'll get into details later, but... Um, an expanded campaign published around the Tomb of Horrors that Gary Gygax again wrote. So when he came back to write this module, this campaign, he wrote down like, okay, what's the history of Tomb of Horrors here? And like some more stuff about it. So Ash, I mean, now I'm going to make you do a Gary Gygax impression, having no idea what he sounds like. Okay. Um, I just remembered that he did make a guest appearance on Futurama, a Futurama episode. <laughs> 
And I kind of remember what he sounds like from that, so I'm going to do my best. It's going to probably be an exaggerated version, so I apologize. Wait, okay, wait, no kidding. Was that actually him? That was actually him, yeah. Yeah. Oh, it right, wow. It was right before he died, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, uh, no disrespect for this. I apologize. <laughs> Before I put on the, it on manuscript for the public publication, I carried the scenario around with me in my briefcase so as to be ready for those fans who boasted of having mighty PCs able to best any challenge offered by the AD&D game. After an hour or so of time spent with the weird labyrinth of Acerac's final resting place, the players whose characters were survivors typically remembered suddenly that they had pressing engagements elsewhere. Clutching their precious character sheets, they fled the table. Those who had already lost their vaunted PCs had previously departed, muttering darkly about impossible death traps. Had I been mean and cruel, I would have required the participants to hand over their character sheets upon the demise of a PC, torn them up, and then smiled wickedly as I asked for the name and addresses of their DMs so as to pass on the news of their sad loss. But I'm very kind at heart. The following paragraphs, because like the introduction, there's like two and a half columns, if I remember right. So Gary goes on to mention that he built this module specifically to test his home group's experienced players. Um, he calls out specifically Rob Kuntz and uh, his character Robolar, who not super well known in D&D history, but there's a feat named after him in third edition, which was pretty cool. And then Ernie Gygax's character and Ernie Gygax is one of his sons, uh, his character Tensor of floating disc fame. I'm also now realizing that that may have leaned a little bit too hard into the Stan Lee territory. <laughs> that impression. <laughs> it works. You, know, you uh, did an impression of a cartoon version of Gary Gygax. And I yeah, hundred percent. <laughs> yeah. Actually, that, that is exactly how I remember it. As you were doing this, I was just like, oh. <laughs> I just remember the end of the episode. They get sucked into, into like an infinite void and it's like, anyone want to play Dungeons and Dragons? perfect (laughs) it's like everybody else is staring at a mouth agape and Tyler's like is this what heaven's like (laughs) Gary also goes on to mention like he wasn't sure when he he wasn't sure about writing the return to the tomb of horrors campaign um, because he had very recently written a campaign called necropolis for a different company and he considered that in his mind to be the ultimate adventure in that vein of thinking alongside Tomb of Horrors. When he went to write Return to the Tomb of Horrors, he thought, okay, well, now what do I do? It went pretty okay. Um, and also, if you're curious about Necropolis, our friends at Frog God Games recently updated it for 5th edition. I have a copy sitting on my shelf. It is gorgeous and has some really cool stuff. In it. So go check that out. Uh, so before, before I throw you guys once more into the Tomb of Horrors, once more into the Death Trap. I'm going to throw you into an ad break first. (laughs) Bright, brilliant colors are to be seen everywhere, the stones and pigments undimmed by the passage of decades. The floor of the corridor is a colorful mosaic of stone with a distinct winding path of red tiles about two feet wide snaking its way south down the corridor. No stonework can be seen on the walls or the ceiling 20 feet above, for some sort of cement or plaster has been smoothed over all of these surfaces and then illustrated. The scenes show fields with kine grazing, a copse with several wolves in the background, workers of various races and strange human-animal mixtures, pig-human, ape-human, and dog-human going about various tasks. 
Certain of the frescoes show rooms of some building, a library filled with many books and scrolls, the door of a torture chamber, and a wizard's workroom. There are chairs, windows, boxes, bales, doors, chests, birds, bats, spiders, and all manner of things shown on the walls. All right, so you're now at the true entrance of the Tomb of Horrors. Uh, given what I have just described to you, how do you proceed into the tomb? Is there an obelisk here? I seem to remember there is. Or is uh, there? There not? is no obelisk. At least not in this. Okay, one. I'm thinking of some. Other, I'm thinking of something else then. <laughs> <laughs> Is there a, a sphere where if I throw the log rogue into the sphere, it disappears? Uh, you know, if you proceed far enough back into this tunnel, yes. I don't know if I want to do that, though. Okay, here's what I want to do. <laughs> I want to roll a history check to remember what we talked about last time we talked about the entrance to the Tomb of Horrors. Uh, well, last time we talked about the entrance to the Tomb of Horrors, we talked about the pit traps. Okay, I don't step on those. <laughs> <laughs> all right so here's the trick do you stay on the red path do you avoid the red path hmm. i avoid the red path all right that was also the wrong answer then i stay on it <laughs> both answers are wrong <laughs> intentionally oh, it snakes no. back and forth it goes around a couple pit traps and then into a pit trap <laughs> so literally the only way to get through this room safely is you have to search every square tap it with a 10-foot pole march forward be cautious and basically hope for the best but if you survive getting through the pit traps and you won't if you survive the pit traps you will get to the giant demon face at the back of the hall with a sphere of annihilation in its mouth so if if you've seen this face anywhere like you would immediately recognize it it's like a big green think like human face with kind of a wispy beard big perfectly circular black void in its mouth and uh, little curly devil horns going forward and down so it's the 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 main picture on tomb of annihilation exactly mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> so that image itself is basically unchanged since tomb of horrors was published so while we're here hey let's talk about those pit traps because uh this is right where we get into the mechanics of first edition. So I jumped in the Wayback Machine doing research for this episode and turned it back almost as far as it goes. Real close. Like, if I went any further, we would be in OD&D territory, and I'm still scared of that. It's fair. It's fair. <laughs> Let's talk about those pit traps, like I said. So when you're searching, like, perception works very differently in first edition. They're... As far as I understand it, like there's no skills, there's no perception skill. If you are searching, you roll a d6, and if you get a one, two, or three, you find the pit trap. So 50-50. No matter 50. what your skill is, no matter... Um, yeah. I, am, I am a blind wizard leaning on my cane as I walk through, or I'm a nimble rogue. 50-50 to find the pit trap. As far as I can tell, yeah, but I haven't read the, the rules of first edition AD&D, so uh, don't consider me an authoritative source. But anyway, uh, real bad chance to find things. And if you don't find them, there's something like a 25% chance that you will not fall in after stepping on one of the pits. Like, odds are not good. You fall into the pit, you're going to roll a d6, and you get one, two, or three spikes for, if you're lucky, none. So maximum three, which is fortunate, but for every spike you fall on, you take 1d6 damage, which, okay, kind of annoying, um, and then you make a save versus poison, mm -hmm. and if you fail, you just die. 
Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sounds reasonable. Okay. And two fours. Is, is this? I remember one point talking about uh, Melf, the male elf, uh, which I think mm-hmm. was Luke's character falling into a pit. Was it one of these pit traps? It was one of these pit traps. Yes. Okay. Do these pit traps then have doors that I can exit? Exactly one of them in the entrance, and I believe one more further into the tomb. Uh, at the bottom of the pit trap, there's a door that takes you to a relatively safe location inside the tomb. Okay, so this is actually a way to get into the tomb, is, is by going through this door. Okay, that makes it sense. Sure is. I, I want to stop for a second and admire the math. So, how many pit traps are there in sequence? Uh, well, let me pull open the map. So, uh, I'm looking at a different map by accident, but weirdly, the map for Tomb of Horrors only changes once in the entire history of the adventure, and they changed it back. Um, So looking at the, I believe this is the first edition version, uh, there are five pit traps in the entrance. Uh, There are other traps in this room, which we'll skip over, but there are five traps kind of like zigzagged through the thing so if you follow the red path you fall into the first pit trap and the fourth pit trap and the fifth pit trap so well so i mean random random chance is basically your only way to get through this deciding whether to do it on the red path or not at at Mm -hmm. each step that you take in pretty much so yeah given that let's just say if it's 50 50 odds let's recognize there is you know two to the fifth power there is a one in 30 seconds chance one over 32 that you would never discover the pit trap yeah something or i should say that differently that that you would safely discover the pit trap maybe that's what i mean to say okay yeah so odds are bad yeah unfortunately i believe everybody gets to roll so like if you have enough people in the party all poking the same space with a 10-foot pole then you might do okay just because you're rolling those dice enough times yeah if you're soloing this dungeon you're dead you're already yeah. dead. Yeah. Don't do the, that. There's no way. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, I, I guess if everybody gets to check, let's say you have a party of four. Okay. For each individual trap, you have a 15, 16th chance of detecting it. Which is pretty good. Yeah. And so at that point, that's actually, that's not too terrible. So really what I'm learning is that the Tomb of Horror is depended on the power of friendship. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, in fact, the the first edition version of the adventure recommended parties of eight to ten characters. And uh, like at the back of the adventure, there's effectively pre-gen characters that say they say, if you don't have enough characters, just throw these into the party because they're going to need the bodies. Yeah. And it also seems like an adventure that's really like if you have bad luck, don't don't play this. <laughs> <laughs> Well, well, Wheaton, this adventure is not for you. (laughs) All right. Uh, So let's let's talk a little bit about the adventure just in general. So there's there's some iconic things in Tomb of Horrors, which I'm going to call out and like these might be spoilers for the event. Well, they're definitely spoilers for the adventure. They might be spoilers for later in the episode for you guys. Uh, So there is a four armed gargoyle in this adventure, which is one of the like three things that you can actually fight in the entire tomb and the like that monster itself is iconic enough that it's on the cover art for the fourth edition adaptation like there's so few things in here to fight that 4e was like here fight the one monster uh let's see there is a false acerarach and i'm just gonna give you guys that tease a little bit and we'll go back to it 
but like this this whole dungeon is full of like misdirection and trickery um there's a chapel inside the tomb which is literally just called the chapel of evil solid Classic. okay yeah <laughs> um inside the chapel there there's a there's a very specific trap which i've always found very interesting um kind of from a social commentary perspective so like bear with me on this one so it's an archway filled with orange mist and it, depending on which edition you're in like no amount of magic can allow you to see through it except for the spell true seeing um so you either have to just walk through it blind or use true seeing to see through it and on the other side of the archway it's just a 10 by 10 room a featureless empty 10 by 10 room with no other exits the first time you walk through the door your character's sex and alignment are reversed oh lord yeah exactly <laughs> um so that immediately gets into some like weird iffy territory and in my opinion like early editions of the game it was very much like a haha you're a girl now kind of joke which absolutely would not fly today um, so i'm honestly surprised that they didn't change it in tales from the owning portal um you come back out through the portal your sex returns to into normal uh your original sex your alignment does not so you like a lawful good man walks in becomes chaotic evil woman comes out as a chaotic evil man and presumably sets about trying to destroy the party um if you again go through the portal trying to get your alignment back to normal your alignment does return to normal but all all inorganic materials on your character are stripped from you and teleported to a Sarax vault, and you are teleported nude back to the entrance tunnel. The, uh, <laughs> uh, the adventure itself has a little note in this. Hang on, I have it written down in my... You're killing me, Windows. Seems wildly fair. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the accompanying note with this is cruel, but most entertaining for the DM. Because yeah, it does seem like... <laughs> This adventure, having never played this adventure, this this adventure does feel like uh, this is just a game for the DM, <laughs> not really a game for the players. It's like, <laughs> yeah. I hope you weren't too attached to that character. <laughs> it, it really does feel like that in a lot of ways. Like uh, this was very much intended to be a crazy challenge for Gary Gygax's own players, and then eventually for other expert players of the game. I I can imagine like this happening to me as a player, and like I I had a stack of sheets. Like you could have just killed the character. <laughs> Instead, there's a line of player characters waiting to come into the tomb and I appear there naked in front of them. And it's like, you know what? This character retires. He walks out, <laughs> walks out of the tomb into the distance, just naked thinking about life. <laughs> and, and now instead of playing Randall, I'm going to play this new character. Andal. <laughs> Are you just going to knock a, a letter off every time you die? Yeah. Yeah, then it's uh, Endel, then it's Doll, then it's All, then it's All, then it's La L. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then it's the the man formerly known as a Randall. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the man with no name. <laughs> I th I think at that point I just stopped playing your stupid adventure. This game sucks anyway. Why did we even come here? You don't even have good <laughs> snacks. You just offered me pretzels, pretzels. man. 
<laughs> so so we've talked a bit about like the pit traps and the the fancy purple purple geez fancy orange door just in general a lot of this adventure is just save or die like if you make an error if you make a snap judgment and do something reckless by accident like by accident by poor choice whatever um if you step on the wrong thing if you touch the wrong thing if you solve a puzzle wrong a lot of times you are just straight up dead unless you take crazy precautions i love that because what you just said is you solve the puzzle wrong it's like that's an answer it's the wrong answer you're not gonna like it (laughs) yeah Yes. Yeah. Usually uh, you call that not solving a puzzle. I want to be very clear. <laughs> well, see, the thing mm-hmm. is, in a lot of cases, it very intentionally gives you an obvious solution to these problems. And the obvious solution is going to kill you. OK, I think even this like this is a commentary on people who play the game and like how the game mm-hmm. is played. Like, OK, <laughs> 40 years ago, Gary Gygax judged us. Because what do we do as DMs now? Like mm-hmm. we give like the vague clue and we're like, oh, yeah, you're totally going to handle this homebrew puzzle. And then a couple minutes in, you're like, this is never going to go anywhere. And so you start really giving the obvious ones. Like, you find a note that says, if you open the door, the door will open. <laughs> and, and then the pair is like, I don't know. What's a door? Like, so, so the idea that, like, I've got this puzzle and it's giving me this obvious, like, there's hope over here. Let's go over here. And you as a player have to be like, nah, I've seen this before. <laughs> this is my fourth character tonight. I'm not going to do that pretty much (laughs) um so so there is actually a uh an adequate riddle uh remember that red path in the entrance tunnel yeah no we both died yeah yes if you look closely enough there is a like poem that gives you clues about how to get through the dungeon they're vaguely vaguely helpful but it's mostly like oh, this makes sense now that I'm already dead. Yeah, it feels right. Okay. Yeah, like uh, uh, mm-hmm, the very mm-hmm. last line is, you've left and left and found my tomb and now your souls will die, which does not make any sense until you're like, oh, I'm, I'm rolling initiative to probably die. Uh, hey, so let's keep going. We're going to jump out of first edition uh, and we're going to go to second edition where we return to the tomb of horrors so we mentioned this earlier uh gary gygax writes a campaign called return to the tomb of horrors which builds out a campaign in either direction with the tomb of horrors as like smack dab in the middle as part of the adventure and it goes into detail the tomb was built and staffed essentially by a Harak to be perpetually kept in the state that the adventure was published so the assumption in Return to the Tomb of Horrors is multiple people have semi-successfully crawled this dungeon and made it back to tell the tale, and eventually it stopped being novel, so people stopped going. And once adventurers stopped going to try and kill a Sararak, necromancers moved in, and they're like, this is Sararak guy seems pretty dope. Let's go check out what he's going on. So they build a town around the Tomb of Horrors and essentially worship him as a deity. And there's this whole long campaign around it. Uh, so this was a, what they called a prestige box set. So it's like they they published this adventure in a physical box, kind of like they did for Spelljammer. They're like, we know this one's going to be really big and cool. Those apparently didn't sell super well. So uh, that's part Oof. of why uh, TSR didn't do great financially in this era. 
but it was a cool series. The campaign itself, it looks pretty interesting. Uh, it does assume that you already own Tomb of Horrors, though, which is a weird assumption to make. OK, wait, wait. I'm buying a second edition prestige box set mm-hmm. that assumes I own a first edition adventure. Sure does. Cool. Just checking. OK, was the yeah. first edition adventure at least still in print? I have no idea. OK, let's I'm hey, let's hope so. <laughs> right. I'm shocked TSR went out of business. Yeah. <laughs> How'd this happen? Yeah, they also say you need to uh, update any rules referenced in the adventure to their second edition equivalents and give you no guidance on how to do so. Good. No, oh, that fantastic. Makes sense. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, well, but luckily, um, wait, no, 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 there wasn't an internet. <laughs> no. Like, I, I can imagine being like a 12 year old calling into the nintendo helpline just being like you guys are nerds right <laughs> um now i know uh, i know writing letters to people was a much bigger thing in this era so it's entirely possible that you could just write to tsr hobbies send them a postcard and be like hey man i have this problem what do i do and they would probably send you back a letter saying like ah uh pay us in stamps and some number of dollars and we'll mail you a xeroxed copy or something just yeah, just make things up for 12 minutes and then tell your players they died. <laughs> Accurate. Yeah. Um, so the thing that motivates the players to go into the two befores in this campaign is uh, they they need to reach this place called Skull City, if I remember correctly. And to get there, you have to have some quantity of Acerax ashes, which you can only get from a Sarax vault where his true dead body lies. So like you have to successfully get through the entire tomb, solve basically all of the puzzles, defeat the like two monsters in there, get into his secret vault and uh, get some of his dead body's ashes without disturbing the Demi Lich that's still there and then get out and then you go back to the entrance tunnel and like by now you found some stuff that tells you you have to do this but you go back to the entrance tunnel and then with those ashes on your person walk into the uh, sphere of annihilation this is the worst escape room that i've ever heard of (laughs) yeah that sounds like some ball to me (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah. um i'm sure it would make sense over time as you played the campaign and like gathered these clues and stuff but when i'm summarizing it that way it sure does sound like you're just throwing yourself into a death trap and hoping the dm's not lying to you no, I mean, this, okay, as an adventure, it it honestly makes perfect sense. There's a MacGuffin at the center of this dungeon. I need you to crawl the dungeon to retrieve the MacGuffin so that you can then take the MacGuffin to the place that it has to be for the cool thing to happen. Pretty much, yeah. The, the, so we play that game all the time. The part that where you're like, oh, okay, really, is that there are carnival workers behind the walls ready to reset the room as soon as you die get rid of the corpse reset the trap so the next group can come through again i'm imagining like like the skull rock there's people sitting around having a picnic it's like oh when's your turn coming oh i go in for the 130 session yeah it does seem like the tomb of horrors is just a a sarax big massive troll (laughs) well yes yeah kind of so (laughs) (laughs) let's see so the the back the backstory that evolved over time i don't know if gygax had this in mind initially but so 
A Sayrak is a lich. At least in 5th edition, it's explained that liches, in order to remain immortal, need to absorb souls and feed them into their phylactery. If they don't do that, their bodies decay and they become a demi-lich. And then eventually the demi-lich itself will decay and they will just, you know, die, essentially. So in order to remain immortal, a Sarak has set up the Tomb of Horrors to basically just keep feeding his phylactery everybody who goes in there and dies. So he has contracts with demons to maintain the tomb so that adventurers will keep going in to try and get the loot. Some of them will succeed, a lot of them will die. As long as some of them keep dying, a Sarak is effectively immortal. So it's effectively like, hey, he's built up a feeding system for himself that he doesn't have to babysit, so he is astrally projected wandering planes. I mean, honestly, solid investment on his part. Yeah. I can, you know. <laughs> if only we could all be so fortunate. I don't know, man. Yep. I I feel like there's a there's a moral boundary. <laughs> e- eating somewhere. other people's souls is that line too far? That's probably too far. Yeah. <laughs> so, two more things on the demons. Um if if you go ethereal anywhere within the confines of the tomb, so you, you use a, a potion or a spell or whatever, so ethere- being ethereal lets you like walk through walls and stuff. So Randall, you'll remember the Horizon Walker Ranger from that zombie campaign you ran. Yeah, remember awesome. how annoying it was? Like ah, here's this obstacle. Yes. And it's like I walk. Nope, through it. not an obstacle. Yeah, uh, if you do that inside the tomb of horrors, a random demon appears and attacks you on the ethereal plane. I don't like that. Actually, yeah. as a, okay, as a DM, I love that. That's fantastic. That's, honestly, <laughs> yeah. that's what I should have done. Again, it goes back to my theory that this is strictly a game for dungeon masters, yes. who especially <laughs> especially dungeon masters who have seen the crap that their players pull and be like, <laughs> not anymore. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, second point on the demons. So in the second edition, uh, they're referred to as Tenari. So this was during the satanic panic and people were looking at like the usage of the words demon and devil and Dungeons and Dragons and being like, see. So in second edition, what they did is they gave all of the various fiends specific names. So like first edition was like type one demon, type two devil, whatever. Um, They're categorizing the demons. Exactly. So second edition, they gave them all specific names like Tenari. Uh, Yugoloth, Balor, Pitfiend, like all of these names that we still use in the Monster Manual today came out of the second edition naming. And I I may have that slightly wrong, so if you know better, please uh, let me know on social media or in the comments on the site, whatever, but that is my recollection. Okay, so so your understanding of this is that the, the different types of demons and devils that we still are using at this point in fifth edition. And let's assume we're going to be in one D and D two actually came out of the satanic panic of it's like, well, the people engaging in this panic obviously don't have great critical reading skills. <laughs> so if we just don't call them demons and we're like tannery, they were like, I don't know what a tannery is, whatever. It's great. Pretty much. Yeah. It's, it's like the inverse of Shakespeare's a rose by any other name. <laughs> uh, as long as we don't call it a rose, no one will know. Exactly. Yeah. No. <laughs> All right, so I'm going to once again throw you both into the Tomb of Horrors 
in Area 16. You're doing 16. this for your own amusement. Oh, I sure. <laughs> Welcome to Area 16, the ad break. So Area 16, this one, uh, this is an easy one. All right. A thick wooden door ahead of you is heavily bound with iron bands, and there are several locks keeping it shut. Um, and if you listen at the door, you hear the sound of far-off music and happy singing obviously coming from the other side of the door. Try and match the tune. Okay. Uh, nothing happens, but you feel happy. I cast knock. Uh, yeah, sure. We'll say Do that we works. Um, so depending, <laughs> depending, on what, <laughs> depending on what edition of the game you're in, a lot of these puzzles specifically say, like, no magic works except for these three spells because we said so. Um, and that is very frustrating. Like, it's especially bad in first edition. It gets a little better over editions. Uh, the fifth edition version, it's like, yeah, DM, just most magic works normally unless we say otherwise. So as the door falls away, you can hear sounds of confusion and distress coming from the north. A faint glow like that of a small flame shines in the distance. The walls of the passage ahead of you are smooth white alabaster and the floor is highly polished smoke gray marble. The description doesn't really give you the layout very well, but like the tunnel goes ahead a little bit and you can see a light retreating, like goes forward a little bit, turns right, and then the light retreats a little bit. What do you do? I think this I think this is a job for log rogue again. <laughs> All right. We'll roll log down log rogue down the hall. Yep. All right. So log rogue rolls down the hall, hits the end. Nothing happens. I'm just going to assume you guys turn it and roll it down the next hall. So it gets uh, it gets pretty far, like to the edge of your torchlight. And then the floor uh, pivots and uh, basically turns into a slide. And uh, just over, like, the tip of what you can see, flames. Uh, so this trap uh, assumes that the party will be dumb enough to chase the fleeing sounds, which are entirely illusions. Players run around the corner, run down that, that hallway, trying to catch whatever's there. Uh, some or all of the party gets toward the end of the slide. The slide flips, and everyone slides down into a flaming pit and dies. Dramatically. Okay. Now, now, hear me out. We sent the log rogue. Yes. Because we don't love it. <laughs> Do we have an opportunity to jump back into the part of the, the tunnel that isn't pivoting? Uh, I, I just assumed you were far enough back that you just see it pivot in front of you and then go back to normal once the log rogue has fallen off. Just turn around and walk the other way. It's like, yeah, exactly. Ah, we're, yeah. we're not going this direction. I don't. Uh, yeah, there's absolutely nothing in nope. this hallway except that trap. Uh, so fun fact, I have run the third edition interpretation of Tomb of Horrors, and this is where my party was TPK'd the second time. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> God. OK, again, though, as a DM, like you're sitting here, it's like everybody. OK, I'm about to give you a long description, but let's. Too long, didn't read. Bottom line up front, you're dead. <laughs> yep. Uh, yeah, so... Welcome to the Tomb of Horrors, you're dead. You want to try again? Welcome back to the Tomb of Horrors, you're dead. How about a third time? <laughs> <laughs> this is fun for me. Yeah. <laughs> so, so much like Gary Gygax, I ran this for a party of experienced players who I'd been playing with for years, um, who knew the game really, really well, and who are pretty convinced like yeah we can we can handle whatever published adventure you're going to throw at us tyler um and i had been reading things on the early internet 
they were not prepared. With that, let's jump into third edition, which is the version that I ran. Uh, so second edition, we got Return to the Tomb of Horrors, which was uh, a campaign built around the adventure itself. Third edition was an actual like update of the mechanics of the original adventure, brought it forward into third edition. Um, now, notably, the illustrations from the original Tomb of Horrors were just straight up used, like no new art, nothing changed. Uh, the layout was changed in exactly one very, very tiny way. They added area 10B, which was basically a broom closet with a brain in a jar. Um, and that that's pretty much the only thing that they changed about the adventure. Uh, most of the text was straight up copy pasted, including all of the room descriptions, all the traps. Like the mechanics were obviously updated. So we've talked about poisons previously on the podcast so the spit the pit traps instead of just outright killing you they damage your constitution score they might as well better okay i i have to say real quick i'm imagining that one intern that had like a summer project to update two wars and it's like i've added a broom closet build my brain (laughs) you wait you expected more we're going to print are you kidding me (laughs) yeah they uh i don't know that that brain might be the intern Actually, okay, I'm, uh, forgive me, help, help me remember, by third edition, are we Wizards of the Coast, or are we still TSR? Yes, this is Wizards of the Coast. Um, so TSR sold to Wizards uh, in, I believe, the late 90s, like, towards the end of second edition. Second okay. edition ran for just a little bit longer. I think TSR may have actually been sold in the middle of those Return to X box sets that they were doing. Okay. Uh, so things weren't going super well. Wizards of the Coast bought them. And then like two or three years later, third edition happens. Tomb of Horrors gets reprinted in 3.5. So this is uh, like 2003, 2004 at the absolute earliest. Um, and I ran this, I want to say 2006 or seven, something like that. But it was distributed as a free PDF on the Wizards website. So we, we at least had that primitive technology. Uh, so things work a little differently it might feel a little bit more familiar to fifth edition players like we i mentioned the pit traps they do constitution damage thank god that's not a thing anymore um you can find things with just a search skill check which again feels like fifth edition because you're making a skill check instead of just 50 50 odds uh most of the monsters feel pretty similar with some minor modifications and i called this out previously on the podcast not this episode but who knows how long ago at this point there is an adamantine door at some point in the tomb and at some point the demons have decided it is too expensive to keep replacing these adamantine doors that adventurers keep stealing so they just replace it with a one foot thick solid steel door that happens in this version of tomb of horrors that's funny i like that (laughs) it does eventually go back to being adamantine in fifth edition but well the soul economy got better so yeah (laughs) also gold's meaningless so why not buy that amantine door yeah (laughs) um so it it's kind of interesting how like some things change but some things stay the same they got rid of electrum pieces uh which had been a a piece of loot that you could find in previous editions um the doorway full of orange mist exactly the same uh and like i said first edition was very bad about like 
your spells don't work except these ones in ways that we specify. 3.5 was much less like, no, like everything just works normally here except in a couple specific spots where there's like an anti-magic field. And like the monster fights are just straight up monster fights. The demi-lich is mostly just a normal demi-lich. It, it's much more within the normal rules of the game instead of like cheating to make the adventure harder it'll still straight up kill you. So we, we talk all the time about like one of the, I'm going to call it an improvement and maybe you'll disagree, but one of the improvements in 5e versus third edition is that we have this bounded math. The numbers get never get insane. They never get to the point they're not manageable. Could I come into this game with a highly optimized third edition character and survive only because I have the most ridiculous skills ever? Or were there still certain things where it's like, no, you're you're on the tilted path, you roll into the fire and you die. That's it. Yes, you could very easily get through this adventure just by optimizing the heck out of your character. Um, so 3.5 had a concept of taking 20, where if you had enough time, you could effectively just repeat a skill check until you rolled a 20 which would mean you always get the best possible result, which took the randomness out of searching for things. So like, I'm going to search this room. I have all the time in the world. I'm just going to take 20. The DC to find those pit traps was 20. So you didn't even have to optimize all that hard. You just had to be patient. Mm. Yeah, as long as you don't have a negative multiplier, if you were in exploration mode, which by definition, if there's no timer going on a trap, if I'm not in combat, I'm in exploration mode, I can always take 20. Exactly. And there's okay. only like three monsters in this entire dungeon and none of them are allowed to leave the room that they're in. So nothing's going to come bother you. So we talked about first edition, second edition, and it sounds like both of those, this really was a meat grinder. But if you were a character into optimization, it sounds like you probably could survive this in third edition. What's interesting to me is like going back to the words of Gary Gygax, right? At that point, you were relying on the mechanics of the game if that was your tactic, as opposed to relying on the cerebral, like I'm thought-driven, you know, brain's not brawn. So in, in a way, the fact that third edition, like it was very powerful, you could create these amazing, fantastic characters who could live that power fantasy. Under third edition rules for Tomb of Horrors, you could, on paper be good enough that you could overcome the limit that Gary Gygax was trying to create with the original Tomb of Horrors. In a lot of ways, yes. Um, I, I think that's what my players went into the third edition version of Tomb of Horrors. Like, they went in with that mentality. Like, we have built these really strong characters. They're built for surviving in Dungeon Crawl. Did not save them. Like, it got them probably halfway through the tomb. Um, if I remember right, at one point, there's... Uh, there's a room with three large vats of acid. Like one is water, one is acid, one is a gelatinous cube. And my players willingly stuck their arms into all of them. It's not good. Yeah, like no matter how strong your character is, if you're an idiot, you're gonna die. Can't fix stupid. Yep. No. <laughs> Can't fix stupid. Um, in my player's defense, I would have died too. That's fair. Well, it sounds like we all would have. Yeah. Uh, and so that's what I'm taking away from this. Uh, cool. So uh, next week, we're going to talk about future editions and, and generally the, the impact on D&D &D and the cultural impact of Tomb of Horrors. All right, we have a question of the week this week. This week, our question of the week comes to us from Girdle Rock on Discord. 
what is one mechanic you would want to use in 5e from another system, but also not from Pathfinder? <laughs> he saw that one coming. Yeah. So I want to fix all melee characters. That's all I want to do. We're going to take PF2 in the, no, sorry. Okay. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, I've said this before, but I really like the sanity and madness mechanics from Call of Cthulhu. So I'd steal those and put them into fifth edition. Because I think the madness rules in fifth edition are bad. <laughs> All right. I'm going to go to uh, Mert Borg from uh, Stockholm Cartel and Free League. And they have several tables that I would love to bring in. So one is the Miseries table, where, you know, kind of beginning of every day, beginning of every session, we roll from that. And the seventh time I hit the bad event on the, on the Miseries table, the world just ends. So this is a campaign, and sure, we have goals. We're trying to do something. We were headed somewhere. But there's also this looming possibility that this world is heading toward an end, towards an end. You know, sometimes the homebrew campaign, you're really you're heading towards a target, and maybe halfway through the campaign, you figure out somewhere else to go. In this case, we're just like, no, it's over. It's done. <laughs> I, I think that's cool. Even beyond that, Larry, the, the table for failed magic, all right? So let's say you cast an attack and it misses, but not only misses, it misses with natural one. Think of a metamagic table, but the table is all terrible. Nothing good happens. And, and the world is just a worse place for your party for having this happen. That's another mechanic that I feel like would be a lot of fun to bring into a game where you're trying to balance a little bit of power fantasy with also, it's like, yeah, no, this is going to get dicey. Like if we always talk about like the caster supremacy, I feel like bringing in the, oh, you rolled a one on your attack, and, and now this terrible thing is going to happen to you, immediately levels out. Like, your skeleton's trying to escape your body, and you're going to die. <laughs> I love that one. All right, so I really like a lot of the mechanics from Fantasy Flight's Star Wars games. Like, there's a lot of things that I really like about them. A lot of them don't adapt well to 5e. Um, Edge of the Empire has this mechanic called obligation, which is basically part of your character's backstory. Like you have some obligation that perpetually taxes your resources. Like, and, and it's to the point that your characters are constantly struggling financially. So, like Han Solo is the easiest comparison because it's very much like you're going to play a Han Solo style character. Han Solo at the beginning of A New Hope owes a debt to Jabba the Hutt. And every once in a while, Bounty Hunter comes looking for him. Like, that's a recurring problem for him. So obligation gives you a mechanic for those things. So, like, your characters, your 5e characters, they have some obligation. Like, they have a sick family member. Uh, they owe money to somebody. Like, their church expects things from them every once in a while. Things like that. So your adventurers might be gearing up like, yeah, we're going to go, like, defeat this dragon over here. And then beginning of the session, you roll obligation. Like, the cleric's obligation comes up and then the church comes and they're like, hey, man, you haven't been paying your dues. We need you to go do this side quest for us before you go do that. Um, otherwise, we're going to take away your cleric powers. Something like that. <laughs> These were rentals? <laughs> yeah, like, hey, man, you're not keeping the faith. You got to keep the faith or you don't get the benefits of the faith. It's very simple. Transactional deities. Um, but it, it gives you a way to 
drag your players' backstories into almost every session. Like once in a while, you'll roll that like nobody's obligation comes up. But basically, and I swear we've talked about this mechanic previously on the episode, but uh, if your obligation doesn't get rolled, um, your chance of rolling your obligation increases every session. So it becomes more and more likely that it's going to roll for you over time. And it basically takes the session and puts a bunch of spotlight on your character for that session, which narratively I think is just really, really interesting, but it does kind of blow up whatever plans your DM had for the session. So, you know, wonderful mechanic if you're really good at improv as a DM, but it, you know, comes with that double-edged sword. I mean, on the flip side, I feel like as a, as a GM prepping for that game, you basically have to be anticipating this is like, this is going to happen. Like, you know, I have four players. One of them is going to hit. We have to figure out what we're going to do. Yeah. I like that a lot. Um, Cause again, yeah, like, that is cool. you know, if we're, we're not in a hurry, right. <laughs> we're, we're playing a campaign. We're getting to know our characters. And I feel like that's feedback when I'm DMing or GMing. That's feedback that I get constantly is I want to do more character development. I want to do more role play and I'm, I'm learning how, and something like this would go a huge ways. I mean, hell, Let's be realistic. Think about your favorite TV shows. How often is it that you take this character that they want you to embrace? They want you to love this character where somewhere in a series, they give you an episode where it's like, hey, there's characters who's had like 30 minutes of the show total in the past three seasons. We're going to spend a whole episode on them. And by the end of it, you're going to love them. Next episode, (laughs) we're going to kill them. Oh, yep. (laughs) Don't do that. But but the rest of it was good. So uh, yeah, the I like it a lot. Episode of Friends. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, everybody remembers Russ. Ah, uh, Russ, poor guy. Yeah. yeah. All hail the Leisure Illuminati. Hail, hail. hail. Oh, I hailed wrong. I died. Time's <laughs> <laughs> uh, breaks. <laughs> Darn tomb of horrors. I'm Randall James. You'll find me at AmateurJack.com and on Twitter and Instagram at JackAmateur. Uh, I'm RPGBot.net. You'll... I'm Tyler Campster. You'll... Jeez. <laughs> oh, I'm Tyler Campster. <laughs> oh, God, no, please don't. Please, I'm Tyler please Campster. do. I'm Tyler Campster. You'll find me dead at the bottom of the first pit trap in the Tomb of Horrors on RPGBot.net, Facebook and Twitter, RPGBOT, DOT, NET, and most other social media, RPGBot. And I'm Ash Eli. Uh, you'll find me cackling as I run this adventure at Graven Ashes. If you've enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcast and rate us on Spotify or your favorite podcast app. It's a quick, free way to support the podcast and helps us to reach new listeners. You'll find links in the show notes. You'll find affiliate links for source books and other materials linked in the show notes, as well as on RPGBot.net. Following these links helps us to make the show happen every week. If your question should be the question of the week next week, Please email podcast at rpgbot.net or message us on Twitter at rpgbotdotnet. Please also consider supporting us on Patreon, where you'll find ad-free podcast episodes, early access to rpgbot.content, polls for future content, and access to the rpgbot.discord. You'll find us at patreon.com slash rpgbot. I cannot form a sentence. Help me. <laughs> this sounds terrible, but I forgot. Like, this sounds terrible. I'm here for it. Yeah, exactly. That's the fun.